0: Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die.
1: Best will hit the right. That could be it. Way back there. Oh, nice. Welcome to Hardball. Today I consider, I consider myself, myself the luckiest, luckiest man, man. On, the on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Back to Conversations that span almost 20 years.
0: It is 9 46 p.m.
1: with the men who saw and made that history. Andy into his
0: wind up. Here's the pitch.
1: Many of whom are no longer with us.
0: Swing out and the perfect game.
1: Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. At-
2: This is Hardball. Dad? You want to have a catch? I'm
1: not sure when it happened. When the first person in a bar, my my guess it was in a bar, declared with all their heart and soul that fill in a blank was, is, the greatest of all time. The concept of the goat was born. Whenever it was, whatever the subject was, president, war hero, singer, if it was early enough, writer or poet, it was inevitable that the subject of athletes would come up. Boxers in some parts of the country, horses. And then it happened. Someone said Ty Cobb, then Babe Ruth, then Garrick Williams, DiMaggio, Mantle, Aaron. And at some point, someone got up to attempt to shut the room down with my guest today. And it seems in the last handful of years, because of the birth of sports talk radio, the screaming heads on every three or four-letter network TV station out there, and now social media, the decibel level on everything goat-related has been amplified to the point of at times just noise. So let's bring it back down a little to just enjoy the debate. There can still be some nuance to all of this, some subtlety even. Numbers versus talent, rings versus rings, length of career versus best seven or eight-year periods, market size and coverage, and of course, legend and lore in the moments that counted. When you grew up in a big baseball house, a house with a dad born and raised in Brooklyn, very important here, when you were born after the Dodgers left in 1957— and one year after the rebirth of Nationally New York baseball coming back in 1962, a year in which the Mets were so bad, a still record 120-loss season, my dad could have given up on the game. Could never root for the Yankees. That team crushed Brooklyn Knights for over a decade. Couldn't root for the Los Angeles Dodgers. They weren't even the Dodgers. They were traitors. More, more likely scoundrels. There was nothing neighborhood or Flatbush about them. No bee on the hat or Brooklyn across the chest. Should have made them change colors, by the way, because that was Brooklyn Dodger blue. But he didn't. He threw in with the Mets, and he told me stories of Brooklyn. And one day as I got older, something happened that it became time for him to cast his vote. The greatest player he had ever seen was Willie Mays. It was time because Willie Mays was coming back home. After 15 years, 3,000 miles away, playing in a ballpark that you wouldn't wish upon your worst enemy, let alone perhaps the greatest player ever. At 41, age and knees in 2,870 games, In Candlestick Park days and nights, the Giants were not in a position to pay Willie, wait for it, $165,000 a year for the next two years. Enter the Mets, or more specifically, Joan Payson, now president and owner of the New York Mets, by the way, the first woman to buy control of a North American sports team rather than inheriting it. Why was this so important to her? Well, Mrs. Payson and her husband were minority owners of, wait for it, the New York Giants and were outspokenly opposed to the team moving to San Francisco. While some of the med organization saw it as a way to work the turnstiles, Joan Payson just knew that Willie Mays needed to take his final bow in New York. I'm nine. Know the game enough to know that Tom Sieber is the best pitcher ever. I'm nine. The World Series of 68, 69, 70, 71 had given me an opportunity beyond watching the Mets to see Gibson, Horton, Brooks, Frank, Palmer, Clemente, Stargell. I knew the game. Enough to understand how the man my dad said was the most talented he had ever seen was playing sparingly at times looked like this perhaps was just a hat-tipping gesture. But then you really grow up. You're fortunate enough to get into the baseball business and speak to Vince Scully and Ernie Harwell and Duke Snyder and Stan Usual and Hank. You speak to Dom DiMaggio, Whitey Ford, and Yogi Berra, and you realize just because you didn't see it, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. I won't spend any time here talking about his numbers. Most of you know that at some point he had a season where he led the league in something. What you maybe need to know still is though he finished with 660 home runs And that number would have easily passed 700 had he not missed all but 34 games in his age 21- and 22-year-old seasons for military service and hadn't played in the worst hitter's park in baseball history in San Francisco. Just a few quick things. If you're new to hardball, thanks for finding us. If it was Willie Mays' name that brought you in, great. If you are interested in the history of these men, the beginning of their careers at times, the players they played with and against, their stories, their recollections, their words to live forever when it comes to the narrative that stretches beyond what others say, what they have to say about any and all of this. This was the original and still continues to be the purpose of hardball. These have never been considered interviews. They attempt to be conversations. If you enjoy this, there are many more to come. I hope you look at previous episodes, and I promise you don't have to be a fan of the player or their team to want to listen. There are so many names and games and players and moments and incredibly interesting origin stories in all of them that goes past individual fandom. These are stories for baseball fans, history fans, social history many times, time and place in our country. Immigrant sons who play a kid's game in America, farm kids who get to the big city to try to make it and stay. I hope you share hardball with friends, dads, uncles, moms. I hope you can spend a minute rating and reviewing where you listen to your podcast. It helps get the word out, I'm told and it just lets people know we exist in a very crowded world of podcasts. I appreciate it more than you know. So here we go, the newest Hardball episode with the great Willie Mays. You will hear right out of the gate that Willie isn't much of a look-back guy, and towards the end he gives me advice as to perhaps the way to look at my career by invoking the names of some of the greatest broadcasters to ever call or watch the game. This one was done with a limited amount of time. It was actually part of a terrestrial radio show, which means it was live, and of course controlled by a clock. It's kind of why I hate the clock. This was before podcasts were a twinkle in someone's eye. We did this in 2001, 50 years after Willie Mays found himself off the fields of the Negro Leagues and minor league baseball in Minnesota and in New York. And we started all off with some very familiar Hall of Fame voices. Red Barber, Jack Buck, Kirk Gowdy, Ernie Harwell. I'll let you hear what they believed about Willie Mays and his career. To me, the greatest
2: all-around player, I say all-around player, that I have seen, is Willie Mays. And Mays is the best player that I've I've ever seen. I rate Mays as the best
0: all-around player I ever saw. Willie Mays, the best player that I've ever seen, I think,
2: or broadcast for all around, no question in my mind. And I was fortunate enough to be with the Giants when Willie Mays broke in. He came up from Minneapolis,
0: been hitting, I think, about 476 there. They brought him into Shy Park in Philadelphia. He began to take batting practice. We were all standing around, and it didn't
2: take a genius uh, to know that Willie Mays was going to be a great ball player.
0: Go get it, Willie. Say, hey, Willie, go get it. What do you mean, go get it? Man, that ball's way in left field. I don't care what field it's in. Willie plays all fields. Every time we come to the game, you're talking about Willie plays all fields. That's right. Let's call Willie and ask him. Call him. Okay. Hey, Willie. Yes. Are you Willie Mays? Yes. Whose ball was that? Why was it? In left field. Well, that's Evans ball. I told you that. You. Every time we come to the game, we got to talk about it. The next time, I'm going to sit in the grandstand. Say I, hey, fellas. What's your name? Say who? Say Willie. Say hey. Say who? Swinging at the plate. Say hey. Say who? Say Willie. That giant kid is great. When he hits the ball, it's long gone, man. It's it for the van, campy swings the bats like a little lead pipe, when they reach the ball, it's overripe, say hey, say who, say Willie. say hey, say who, swing it at the plate, say hey. Choo-choo train swings around an his cap flies off when he passes third, and he home like giant...
1: i've said it before i'll say it again my father proclaimed him to be the best baseball player he ever saw and that's coming from a Brooklyn Dodger fan very happy to be joined tonight by Willie Mays Mr. Mays, how are you this evening
2: I'm pretty good
1: now can you believe it's 50 years since your rookie season?
2: I don't even worry about that kind of junk I uh, I just enjoy life as I go along I don't I try and look back at it's 50 years I I think that's wonderful but uh, I've been out of baseball since 1973 uh, playing wise so I don't I really don't look back that way
1: Do you still enjoy watching the game today?
2: I watch all the game. I go to games uh, just about daily uh, when I can, you know, get there most of the time. But I watch, uh, you know, baseball, baseball really, you know, keep up with it.
1: And is Barry, right now, I mean, the, he certainly has been over the last decade or so the best player in the game consistently. You must enjoy. Well,
2: that's not for me to answer. I think that's for the fans, uh, different people. I'm, I'm kind of a little biased by that. So mm-hmm. I stay away from that a little bit. Uh, but I think uh, other people should do what they have to do as far as. Uh, saying he's the best player because I, I don't see a lot of other players like I see Barry daily, you
1: know. And this year, obviously, the first half of the year that he's had has just been phenomenal as we get to the All-Star break. We are joined tonight by Willie Mays. You played with your father on uh, on a couple of teams, didn't you? No, growing up in Alabama?
2: I, I, I was playing center. He was playing left.
1: Okay. So having a chance to play with your father, and, and we've talked in the past, Mobile, Alabama, a great, a great hotbed for baseball talent coming out of that area.
2: Yeah, a lot of guys come out of that area. I think it was Aaron... Uh, McCovey, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was uh, Cleon Jones, A.G., quite a few other guys that I know that came out of the area.
1: But certainly good baseball being played down there. Now, we mentioned the Birmingham Black Barons. Um, how old were you when you signed with them?
2: Uh, we didn't have contracts back in those days. You just went out and played. And uh, uh, I was still in high school when I started. I started and I was in 11th grade. And uh, they wouldn't let me sign a contract because uh, I was in school. Uh, I just played, and they just paid you, so it was just one of those uh, agreements that I had uh, with the ball club.
1: And you do. This must have been a pretty good team, though, if you guys later on in the late 40s going up to the polo grounds to play. did you Do you remember what team did you play in the polo grounds?
2: I think every city had a team. You start with Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, uh, New York Cubans. Uh, uh, you got Kansas City Monarchs. You had... Uh, Uh, the Homestead Grays, Mm -hmm. a lot of clubs, Chicago, Eli Giants. uh, That was a lot of clubs that was very good. Uh, Memphis, uh, Tennessee uh, had a ball club. Uh, So it was a lot of cities that had uh, ball clubs that uh, could do very well in the majors.
1: Now, I've heard a pretty interesting story about your call-up to the major leagues. Were you actually in a movie theater at that time?
2: Uh, Yes, I was in a, a place called Sioux City, Iowa. Uh, I was in a movie, and uh, uh, over the screen it came uh, came uh, my name, which I didn't think nobody knew I was there. <laughs> uh, they uh, say, you know, we're amazed, go to the, uh, 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 I guess, booth there. And uh, Leo was on the phone, so then after that, I went to the hotel, and we talked, and I think after that, he, you know, suggested I come up. I really didn't want to go
1: because I, I didn't think I was ready. You were hitting over 450 in the minor leagues. I guess at that point yeah. they figured it was time to
2: mm-hmm.
1: time to bring you up. Now, you started on the road, but your first game back in New York City proved to be memorable, uh, I guess, when you faced Warren Spahn. Uh,
2: I started in Philadelphia on a Friday, and uh, we came back to New York the uh, following Tuesday. And uh, I had went 0 for 12, I think, or 0 for 13, somewhere around there. I uh, hit a home run off of Spahn, and then I went uh, 0 for 10 again. So it was about 1 for 25.
1: Now, when you have as much talent as a player like you would have, how discouraging is that kind of beginning for you? Were you questioning your ability to play at this level, or did you just think it was something that you'd work right out of?
2: No, I, I didn't have any idea that I would work it out. I thought it was just something that uh, I was supposed to do, and I was to do it very well. Coming from uh, uh, the minor league hitting over 400, I think I thought I could hit half of that without any problems, which I did. But, uh about four games and I, got, I guess I got disgusted and uh, Leo came to me and said well he, hey you're gonna be my center field don't worry about it and uh, I think after that uh, I just started playing and playing very well.
1: Now you would had, had a relationship with Leo DeRocher before you got called up to the Giants correct?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so hearing that from him must have as you said really helped to just okay it's settled on playing and from then on I believe you go on to win the rookie of the year correct?
2: Well, I, I met Leo in uh, Sanford, Florida, before I came to Giants. He, we played a couple of special games for him. Uh, uh, a guy named Ray Danridge and I played. And uh, Leo said to me at that time, you'd be up before the end of the season. But they had a guy by the name of uh, Bobby Thompson playing center Field, and I didn't think I had a chance because Bobby was a very established ball player at that time. So uh, when he called me up, and uh, I did very well, like I say, and uh, – I was a rookie of the year for the first year. I played 129 games, so I uh, hit 20 home runs. I should have hit more, but uh, like I say, I was young and didn't understand how to hit up there, you know, too good.
1: Now, first years, you believe it was just raw abilities, and, and after, why 1954, do you believe? That's the point where you well, think Well, I went it. in the
2: service in two, two years, mm-hmm. and I had a chance to play like a 90-game schedule there, and I think in the service, I grew up, and I got bigger and stronger. In 1954, when I came out, if you check the record, I did very well. We won the pennant. We won the uh, World Series. So I thought uh, 1954 was a very good year for myself.
1: Now, I've also heard the story that your last game before you went into the service was in Brooklyn, and even the Brooklyn Dodger fans Mm. gave you a pretty nice ovation that day.
2: Well, I I think uh, that's what's what's so good about baseball is that people understand if you can go out and and you hustle day in and day out, they recognize that, and especially when you when you're young and you're going uh, going into the service for two years, and they're gonna miss you know seeing you playing. And I think the the Dodger fans uh was was a good good fans to understand about baseball, and so as well as the Giants. So I think uh, when you when you have a player that you know can can play and hustle all the time, they 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 reward you.
1: And you mentioned being young in 1951, but you play in a World Series your first year in the major leagues, and a young man by the name of Mickey Mantle, his first World Series in his rookie year as well. Do you remember, did you watch other players as a fan still being that young? Did you watch to see what they did even as a a learning tool?
2: I I already knew how to play ball when I got there. It's just a matter of of making myself believe in what I could do. Uh, By the way, Mickey got hurt in that year. Mm -hmm. He got hurt uh, in a manhole in, uh, in Yankee Stadium, so he didn't play that much. You know. uh, also, we came up at the same time. But uh, I never really watched a lot of guys. Uh, I I just did what I had to do, and, and I tried to do more. Uh, I tried to make sure that uh, uh, whatever I had to do, I wanted to do more. And uh, when you talk about you know watching guys, I think sometimes uh, if you watch a guy, he may not do what you think you can do, so mm-hmm. you just – do what you have to do, that's, and that's what I did.
1: Now, Leo DeRocher also paid you a very big compliment. Joe DiMaggio, that's his last World Series, and Leo was on record as saying he thought you were the most complete player even beyond DiMaggio, and Leo would obviously obviously, had seen Joe in his heyday.
2: Well, Joe was my album, so I, I don't argue with things like that. that see, when you talk about things like that, I think it has to come from other people, mm-hmm. not myself. Uh, uh, I don't understand about all these 5-2 things and like that. I think you should go out and just play to win. Win is more important than just the individual records and things like that. And I was mainly a, a guy that uh, if you didn't win, you hit four home runs, and you didn't win, which I thought was bad, uh, because the clubhouse would be sad even though you had a good day. So I uh, if, if Leo want to think that way, that was fine with me, but uh, I never really tried to play myself against each other.
1: And you mentioned the two years in the service. Actually, you physically mature and you understand the game better when you come back. Uh, the stories about the stickball games. I mean, in honesty, can't stick ball playing stick ball in the streets.
2: Yeah, stick ball. Yeah, I played that uh, in
1: 1954. Is uh, that a is that a great way to learn how to hit?
2: <laughs> I already knew how to hit. <laughs> 54. I already had played a whole season. Mm-hmm. A whole season, and I already had played in Birmingham. No, stick ball was a game that is was around New York. Uh, it didn't help me to hit it. just helped me to uh, keep me uh, aware of what was going on daily as far as the baseball was concerned. But I already knew how to hit.
1: Well, I'm talking about for the younger kids that perhaps were with you.
2: Oh, you didn't say kids.
1: Yeah, no. I thought <laughs> you were
2: talking about myself.
1: Right. No, no, I'm sorry. I meant the younger kids that were around you when you were playing those games.
2: Well, that's, see, the kids that you play with, they are not baseball players. They are fans. And the kids that I had in my block, uh, I lived on 156, 55th Street in, in St. Nicholas in New York, and all the kids there would come by uh, day in and day out, and we'd just play stickball. we play for about uh, maybe an hour, and then I would go and buy all the guys uh, ice cream. So there was no losers in the game that I played. You know, If you don't know about stickball, then you have to understand, uh, have someone explain it to you, because it's kind of... Kind of confusing because you, you're talking about uh, manhole sewers rather than just a base. You're talking about you know moving cars rather than uh, a base. Uh, we would block off the streets and, and play in, in the middle of the street, so we had a good time playing.
1: Did uh, did a lot of catchers talk at the plate when you came in? Did guys try to maybe take you off your game a little bit or? Uh, a
2: couple of them did. Uh, that was Campanella did it. Uh, a kid by the name of Bob Yuka. Uh, tried to do it a couple of times, but you just, you know, you block them out, Uh, and if you hit consistent, they let you alone. (laughs) You know, you just have to go out and enjoy what you're doing, and uh, you can't worry about things like that.
1: Now, when you end up your career with the Mets, coming back to New York City, uh, was that exciting for you? Was that something Joan Payson or Gil Hodges, or how did that actually come about?
2: Uh, First of all, I didn't want to leave the Giants. I thought the Giants was a team that I would stay with for a long time, but I, I soon uh, understood what Mr. Stoner was doing. He uh, uh, wanted me to make sure that I would uh, uh, be financially taken care of. So he, I think he called Mr. Joan Payson to make sure I came back to New York where I started at. Uh, I think it was rewarding that when I came back to New York that uh, it was good for me because I got a lot of jobs after I got through playing uh with uh, Colgate-Palmolive, a company called Tech Textile, uh, was with uh, Racetrack in Boston. So I did very well and also got a job with Ballards which I'm still there mm-hmm. right now. So it it was rewarding going back to New York. And the New York people uh, understood that, hey, you know, I already had played 20 years, so we're going to give him two years. So I think that's really what they did for me.
1: And I met a gentleman who used to work for the Atlanta Braves, who you know, Jim Beecham.
2: Beecham was yep. there with me, yeah. And we, he, had, we had a good two years together. He was a really, really nice man.
1: Well, he enjoyed your company immensely, and he told me a story about the bat that you hit your last home run with mm. in the Major League 666. And mm. he has that bat, and he said, You let <laughs> I him. I don't
2: know who had it uh, sound like Jim. He, he's the type of guy that would keep it that long.
1: Yeah, he actually told me that you actually gave him the blessing because I guess it was in August, and he said, Well, Willie, and you just said, There you go, Jim. You picked it up. You can have it.
2: Yeah, that's right. I probably did. Because uh, uh, Jim was a nice guy. Well, Joe Torrey, Jim Beecham and myself were the three guys that we didn't play day in and day out, but we did play sometimes and uh, uh we just hung out together and it was you know, they made me feel very, you know, relaxed when I was there.
1: And Mr. Mays, your favorite baseball movie? Do you have one?
2: My baseball movie? Your
1: favorite baseball movie?
2: Well, you gotta think about that because there's a lot of them out there, you know. I like uh, the Field of Dreams. Uh, the Field of Dreams was uh, a movie that uh, you can remember guys as you see them walking in, you, and, and you didn't have to understand where they play. You can remember the name, and you can just visual, visualize uh, uh, what each one of these guys uh, did. So I thought Field of Dreams was a, was, a, was a good movie.
1: And we mentioned the 73 Mets, Gil Hodges, the, the manager. No, no. Uh, Yogi Berra, the man. Right, Gil Hodges, the manager in '69. Do you regret not having a chance to play for Gil? Because I knew you knew him as a player. Well,
2: '69, I was still playing for the Giants. I played very well in '69 and and with San Francisco. So I didn't. I don't think I had a problem, you know, trying to get to the Mets at that time because I wasn't even thinking about being traded. Uh, Yogi and I were good friends. Uh, We had a, you know, good time together. He, he always, you know, wanted me to play when I wanted to play. So. uh, it was fine. My two years there with the Mets, uh, the end of the year, I told you, it was, it was just uh, really, really nice. They, they really you know, t- took care of me. They made sure that I didn't get too lonely without playing because they knew I was used to playing day in and day out. So it, it was good. I had some really nice guys on that club.
1: And last thing as we finish up with Millie Mays, and we do appreciate his time tonight, uh, Willie, the spitball loading up. Clyde King once said he loaded up a pitch with gum to throw to you. Um.
2: I don't even know about spitball. <laughs> I was I wasn't a pitcher. Clyde King was a guy that quick pitcher. He wasn't a spitball pitcher, uh, but he was a guy that would, you know, once you get in the bat, batter's box, he here come the ball. So, he was a quick pitcher, a uh, uh, type of guy, not a spitball that I can remember.
1: He once, I guess, said, though, that he loaded up a pitch with some gum. He just said, the heck with it. I'm going to stick a slab of gum on this thing and throw it up there, and maybe it'll move well, a little he bit. Well, you
2: hit it on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't bother me, uh, no, because Clyde, he didn't throw real hard. He was a trick ball artist type of guy. You know, he didn't throw real hard.
1: Were you a guess hitter? Did you guess what was coming?
2: No, I was the type of hitter to to worry about what the guy threw. And when I said that is that if he was a fastball pitcher, you had to sit on the fastball. If it's a breaking ball, you had to sit on the breaking ball, and and you couldn't miss it. And I think I was very fortunate that I didn't miss a pitcher, uh If I wanted to hit it, I didn't miss it. So and that was the key to my hitting. I think is that you had to hit what you you know what the guy throws up there. You know daily.
1: And Mr. Mays, I've never really heard you say this publicly or not, but everybody knows the Polo Grounds and then Candlestick Park, and certainly different, certainly more difficult to hit in some of those parks. Um, what do you think you would have done, home run numbers wise, if you had played in some of nothing, these other places? Nothing,
2: no more than I have. I, you can't do that. You can't worry about uh, the time mm-hmm. you play, and now you talk about you see ballparks are smaller. You can't do that. I, I had twenty-two very very good years, and I don't worry about uh, what's coming up. Uh, I think uh, when you try and do that, I think you you hate baseball. I think uh, it's just some time that I came, uh, I hit, I got 660 home runs, which is very good. So uh, so you're talking about another 10, 20, maybe 50 home runs. So I, that's it's really not, it wasn't that important. What was important to me was winning. Uh, all these records that you're talking about wasn't really uh, there because you have 25 guys on a ball club and 25 guys have to be happy sometimes. So and all the things that I've did, wasn't really important, but unless we won ball games.
1: And that '51 season, when you guys come back, now a lot of allegations have been made, and you said you were just a rookie and and you weren't really as in tune as you would be in 1954. Henry Shens came out, and uh, Ralph Branca and Bobby Thompson have talked. Again, and I know I'm
2: gonna try and explain that to you. I'm, I'm saying I I wasn't involved in anything that I I don't know about all these things that people talk about. You know I. I said, ask me about things that were from 1954 when I was in tune to what baseball was all about, what people was all, was doing. I can relate to that much more than I can uh, in my first year there.
1: Well, Mr. Mays, I appreciate your time. And I know, as I said, on All-Star Weekend as well, uh, Willie Mays, one of the perennial All-Stars, fan favorite after the fans, you know, get a chance to not, not see you in a lot of the American League cities going up against some of the best. Um, the all-star game may be a little bit more fevered pitch back then. Is it true that, that the commissioner or the, I'm sorry, the league president would come in and give you guys pep talks before the all-star games?
2: They do that uh, every time. Each, each, uh, I don't know about now because we don't have a right. league and nice league. I, the time that I played, each guy had a choice to come in and, and thank all the guys for coming to the all-star game, uh, When I played, they didn't have home runs, hitting hunt contests and things. We just went out and played the game. Uh, Now it's more of a—I don't know if it's a showcase or what it may be—but it's more activity now than it uh, was when I played. Uh, So they start on Monday, and sometimes you end up on instead of uh, Tuesday, end up on Wednesday sometimes.
1: How important was it to win that game for the National League that you and your teammates?
2: I don't know about other guys. To me, it was very important. I. uh, I wanted to lead off uh, when I played in the All-Star game. Uh, I, I hit third it with the Giants, but I felt that I could get on base, steal a base, or hit a home run, or, or hit a single and score score a run. Now they got to score two runs to beat us. So I wanted to beat the best of the American League, and I'm sure the American League wanted to do the same thing for us.
1: Do you think it's the same today with players?
2: I don't get involved with arguments. I stay away from controversial type of stuff because – I feel that baseball was a very, very good game for me. I don't knock baseball by any means. I just make sure that I enjoy what I did. And when you start trying to say, well, the 90s, the 80s, the 50s, or whatever uh, different areas, uh, which it was, so you just leave it at that.
1: Mm-hmm. And, Mr. Mason, as we finish up, you mentioned no home run derby in the All-Star game then, but there was a home run derby TV show.
2: Well, that's nothing to do that. was off season. That wasn't right. the regular season.
1: And they did that, I believe, at a, another field named Wrigley Field out in California, correct? In
2: California,
1: yes. How did you do in that?
2: Uh, I think we I won about five, uh, six out of seven.
1: Because Hank Aaron had told me, I think he bought a store for his father. The money that they, you know, as you kept advancing, I guess it was a little bit more money. And Hank Well, said, no,
2: it was $2,000 per person if you win. 1000 to the loser. So I think Hank won about, I think Hank won eight or nine. Mm-hmm. I I lost the first one, then I won six in a row, then I lost one uh, another one, so I won about six out of seven.
1: Who actually beat you?
2: Mickey beat me the first one, and I think uh, might have been uh, Bob Lemon. I don't recall it was such a long time ago.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Mr. Mays, again, always appreciate the time, and and I like what you said before. By the way, you said, why would I? You know, when I asked you about the home runs, and I never really heard you mention that, how many would you have had? But I, I did like your answer of why would I say something like that because it would only hurt baseball today. And, and obviously you still care enough about the game not to want to have people discussing necessarily the negative. It should be about the positive part well, of the game. Well, let's
2: go back to you. Since you're an announcer,
1: mm-hmm.
2: are you involved with Mel Art, Mel, Mel Allen and uh, Red Bob and all the guys? Uh, can you relate to those? Uh, it's like you're talking about me relating to home runs mm-hmm. different things. Uh, can you take yourself back in that situation? Uh, I think you should move on and move fast the way you're moving rather than going back in, uh, 50 years ago.
1: In other words, look to the future and let's make sure the game stays as good as it can be?
2: It always will be that way. You know, you're not going to change the game. You're just going to change situations around the game.
1: I, I hadn't thought of it that way. I do enjoy speaking to people such as yourself and Ernie Harwell and – you mentioned well, some that's of the announcers guy of the that was
2: with me in New York, and all I'm saying to you, when you ask me to, to explain things, you have to look at what you're involved mm-hmm. in, and when you start thinking about it, Onion Harwell, Red Barber, uh, the, the guy with the Dodgers, Vince, Vince, Vince Scully, and you look at all those guys, how long they've been in the in the, in the business, and uh, then you can say to yourself, well. I think I want to be like them, and I don't think you would. I think you want to be like yourself. You want to move on and do the best you can, and that's what I did in baseball. I moved on, and I'm not going to say these guys today are different from the guys that I played in the 50s. They, the 50s was good. Uh, the '2000 uh, the may be a little better. I don't know. It depends on the fans.
1: And it does ultimately come back to the fans and how much they enjoy it, I guess.
2: Well, you can see that. They're a new ballpark. They're mm-hmm. drawing more people uh The game is getting greater, I think. I remember early in my career, and early in his, I was doing a game, and I talked about Willie Mays. And I said, "Uh, gosh, Willie Mays, he's, he's the best player I've ever seen. Well, when that game ended, Red said to me, young Scully, which is what he would call me when he was a little irritated. He said, "You haven't been around long enough to talk about the best player you've ever seen." Well, I play. I play the same all the time. Whether we play the Dodgers or play anybody, I, I never. You call try to save anything just because we're playing one club or another. You know, I don't, I don't believe in that too much. Uh, I try to uh, just play my same brand of ball every day. I was so nervous in things that I actually, I, I, could do a lot of things, but if I didn't have anyone to talk to me and tell me different things that I was doing wrong, I would probably continue doing it. I was playing pretty fair at Minneapolis when I first came up. But when I came to the Giants, it was just like, uh, like I said, night and day, you have to learn baseball all over again. And that time I had a manager in Leo.
0: And Leo Durocher recalls today one of those early
1: moments. And then
0: uh, the one day we were beaten by the Boston Braves, it uh, well, uh, was either two to one or one to nothing. And uh, I came in the clubhouse and I was a little upset. Mays had gone on the plate three or four times with men been the in score position, one out, nobody out popped up for him hit into double play. And I was a little disturbed. And uh, one of my coaches came in to me, Herman Franks, and said, hey, you better go talk to your boy. He's sitting in front of his locker crying. So well, I went down and put uh, my arm around him well, while he was sitting there sobbing like, and he's, he said, he, he never called me Mr. DeRose or Leo, he said, Mr. Leo, he said, Mr. Leo, and he talked in a high kind of voice, he said, Mr. Leo, he said, I can't play it, Barry, this is too tough with me, I can't, and I know you're going to send me back to Minneapolis, and I put my arm around him, I said, son, there's as, as I'm the manager of the New York Giants, you're going to be brought you up here to play center field, and you're going to play center field. Today, tomorrow, next week, next month, and as long as I'm here. The home is not dressed rest tomorrow, another day. The following day, again, Warren Spahn, first ball pit, over the roof, and, believe me, Charlie, he carries it. Literally, he carries on his back for the next six weeks.
2: I think when people pay their money to come to a ball game, you should try and put 110% into the game. And that's what I try to do every game. I never feel that I would ever quit baseball. But as you know, it always comes a time for someone to get out. And I look at the kids over here, the way they are playing, and the way they are fighting for themselves, tells me one thing. Willie, say goodbye to America. Thank you very much.